Simon Deakin, Professor of Law, Director of the Corporate Governance Research Programme at the Centre for Business Research, Cambridge University. Simon, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series once again. We're here to debate the implications of the Pringle judgment in terms of the European Central Bank and Europe. Just begin by explaining what the Pringle judgment was. So the European Union has set up something called the European Stability Mechanism, which is a mechanism which will allow financial assistance to be made to states facing the possibility of bankruptcy or serious economic crisis. And now the legality of this stability mechanism was challenged, and this is what the Pringle case is basically about. And the EU Court of Justice has held that the ESM is legal, but when they said it was legal, they said it's only legal because it allows for financial assistance to be made to a debtor country only according to the principle of strict conditionality. And this is the point at which the European Court is attempting to address issues of economic policy and even to direct issues of national, social and economic policy. Because the Pringle case was brought by an Irish man who didn't like the bailouts going on in Europe. That's right. Some people have said that the bailouts which are taking place aren't lawful. And that's for a number of reasons. Essentially, when the single currency was set up, it was set up on the basis that the European Union institutions, including the central bank, couldn't provide an overdraft, for example, to a central or local government unit of one of the member states or or, or to the union itself. In addition, it's it's very clear under the treaty that the European Central Bank cannot buy bonds directly from national governments and so can't subsidise or support them in that way. Now, what has been happening for the past um, few months and indeed the last couple of years is that the European Central Bank has been buying bonds from governments indirectly. It has purchased bonds on secondary markets. Those bonds are purchased by banks from the governments which issue them. Now, the willingness of the ECB to do this, and it is said it will take whatever is necessary to save the euro, has unquestionably stabilised the position of Spain and Italy in recent months. Their borrowing costs have gone down, and this has brought stability to the eurozone at an absolutely critical point. But for some people... Oh, Mr Pringle... Indeed. Well, Mr Pringle's point is that the establishment of the ESM, that was his narrow point, is unlawful. But the bigger issue addressed by the Pringle judgment is what steps can be taken to ensure a bailout? And are these steps compatible with the fundamental legal structure of the European Union? Well, let's deal with the Pringle judgment in two parts. One, the good about it, Mm. and two, the bad, the implications for European policy and economic policy in the future and growth. First, the good things about the Pringle judgment. So the good thing about the Pringle judgment is that the the court goes to some lengths to say that it was lawful to establish the ESM. And the court reaches that conclusion by distinguishing between monetary policy, which is an exclusive competence of the European Union itself, which is to do with price stability, and the wider economic policy of the Union. Now, had they said that establishing the ESM as part of monetary policy, it would not have been lawful, but they drew a subtle distinction between economic policy and monetary policy to allow the ESM to be characterised as lawful. Now this was to some degree a rather technical legal argument, but I think also it demonstrates real flexibility and some innovation on the part of the court. For the very first time, the court has spelt out what exactly monetary policy means in this context and how it fits together with the wider goal of stabilising the economic nature of the Eurozone. Now, the the court was very inventive in in, in taking this line, and I think it understood what was at stake. It wasn't merely a technical legal argument. The 
economic constitution, the economic governance structure of the EU had to evolve to meet the conditions of the crisis and the court found an ingenious way of allowing that evolution to take place. The bad points of the Pringle judgment, because it did, as you say, the court pushed public policy forward with its judgment, but it's also holding it back because if it says the only measures you can impose on a country are ones that rein in spending, austerity measures, then you believe that we're never going to see growth in Europe. Well, that's a real problem. So it's, in a way, it's good law, but bad economics, because what the court has said is that in future, when the organs of the European Union, including the Commission and the European Central Bank, act in the context of the ESM, and indeed, more generally, I think the implication is, when they act to ensure bailouts, they may only do so on the basis of strict conditionality. Now, that was already in the ESM treaty, but what the court has done is to elevate this to a fundamental constitutional principle for the emerging governance structure of the EU. The bailouts may not take place except on the basis of conditionality. Now, the court doesn't say so, but in practice, this means only one thing. It means instructions to member state governments. They'll receive financial assistance in return for a structural adjustment package, which in practice will, will mean privatization, social security cuts, and deregulation of labor laws, taking rights away from workers and from trade unions. And the logic of this is that all this is needed to drive down wages and costs in the debtor states. But this, I'm afraid, is a fundamentally misconceived economic policy. But at the same time, it does represent a coming of age, the Pringle judgment, for the European Central Bank. Yes, it's half good. So the, the, the court has shown flexibility, and the European Central Bank itself is beginning to do what central banks should do. The ECB's powers are limited, but not completely restricted by the EU treaties. Normally, a central bank has to be prepared to do what the ECB is now, in effect, doing. It's got to underpin the market for government debt. And if it doesn't do that, the danger is there'll be a kind of downward spiral in the market for government bonds, which will eventually pull down both a government and a central bank and also the market. Now, governments and central banks across the world are in effect in a kind of mutual defence pact in this situation. A central bank has to support the government by directly or indirectly buying its debt. And the government has to allow for the, for the central bank to have this flexibility. Without this, national economies can't deal with a short-term crisis of the kind induced by the shock which occurred in the global financial crisis. So the bank is coming of age, the ECB is behaving more like a normal national central bank. And of course that's tremendously important for the evolution of the EU itself towards something more like an integrated economic union. But by enforcing these austerity measures to go hand in hand with European bailouts to struggling countries like Italy, Spain or, or Greece, you accuse the court of legal originalism. Well, I think to some degree the opponents of the court were guilty of this, but the court itself goes too far in allowing this sort of argument to get going. The originalists would say the, the fundamental EU constitution can't evolve, and that constitution stops the bank doing what it's doing, and if they were right, then the crisis couldn't be solved, quite frankly. We wouldn't have an EU, we wouldn't have a euro, we wouldn't have a court. The EU is facing an existential crisis. Now, the court goes part of the way, it allows the ECB to do what it does, it's allowing the ESM to function in future, but the court then says, completely, in my view, unnecessarily and counterproductively, in future, this sort of bailout activity 
is strictly conditional upon the application of a structural adjustment package. Now, that will fail, because the structural adjustment packages in Greece in particular, but to some degree also in Ireland and in Portugal, associated with the Memoranda of Understanding agreed with those states by the so-called Troika of the IMF, the Commission, and the Central Bank, are driving down demand in those countries. But they're doing that by, by imposing wage cuts, by imposing deregulation, by cutting away the welfare state. Now, that's counterproductive, because this means a loss of demand, and these economies will not recover. And if they don't recover, and if there's no growth, and if this also is repeated in Spain and Italy, the Eurozone crisis will simply continue indefinitely. And I know that you also feel strongly that it should be looking at the causes of the problems throughout Europe, and particularly in the UK, the unregulated financial sector. So we've got to remember how this crisis began. The crisis begins in the private sector, not the public sector. It wasn't public sector profligacy which caused these government debts. It was an unregulated financial sector which ran up these debts, and these debts were then transferred. And this is still really astonishing, but it was transferred from the private sector to the public sector because the states, in the end, have to bail out these banks. And it's often not the banks in Greece and Portugal and Italy and Spain that were doing this. It was very often French and German and Scandinavian banks who were lending to these governments. It's to save those banks, very often, that austerity was being imposed on the southern member states. Now, what should happen, of course, is there should indeed be conditionality for financial support, but the conditionality should not be addressed to the welfare state or to the labour market, which didn't cause this crisis. The conditionality has to be addressed to the financial sector. It has to be about re-regulating the financial sector to stop this happening again. And although there has been some progress on this, there hasn't been anywhere near enough. There hasn't been anywhere near enough progress in re-regulating the financial sector to make sure there isn't a repeat of what happened in 2008 to 10. But surely European law and the European courts can't go down that line because they would be overstepping, really, their interpretation of the Constitution and what's allowed. So the, the Constitution's got to evolve, and it's got to evolve in the following sense. At some point, again to save the euro, there has to be a, a fundamental rethink about current economic policy. And that economic policy is, in a sense, locked into the current institutional structure of the treaties. Now, those treaties are designed to promote a particular kind of approach to economic policy. That, that economic approach fundamentally failed in, in the current crisis. It wasn't just a failure to regulate finance. The institutional structure put in place for the single currency produced a situation in which, on the one hand, we had the southern member states who were growing very quickly. Um, the northern member states, on the other hand, were growing more slowly, in part thanks to efforts made to depress wage increases below productivity. Depressed growth and depressed wage growth in the northern core of the Eurozone is just as much a problem as excessive inflation and excessive wage growth in the southern states. Now, to address that problem means addressing the particular situation not just of the southern states or Ireland, but of the northern European states, the so-called German core or the German-influenced core of the Eurozone. And it also means fundamentally rethinking the institutional architecture of the single currency. The single currency is, a, is, a, is an important, indeed, fundamental achievement without which the European Union couldn't have evolved as it has done. But 
there's a difference between the single currency and the particular institutional structure put in place during the 1990s for the current Eurozone. That's got to change. Now, the court mustn't stand in the way of those changes. That's the most important thing. The changes will have to come in the end from new action by the Council, from the States and the Parliament. But the court could lend a hand. The court could be more flexible in the way it interprets the existing provisions of the treaty. Well, you say that. Professor Simon Deacon, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series today. We'll wait to see what happens. Thank you, Bonnie.